This is Bob Smith. Okay, we're ready. So I'll patch us in. To sort of see where some of the REA stuff had done, and Hello. since that time, that was three years ago. Um, the uh, the ontology itself has changed uh, quite a bit, and it turns out that. Um, um, go ahead, Peter. Oh, we're back. I'm sorry to to interrupt, okay. uh, Bill. So this is a recorded session, and we're starting it now. So uh, thank you very much uh, for joining. This is the Ontolog Forum, and the date is. Uh, March 17th, year 2005. Uh, we uh, it, 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 uh, it's a great day uh, to have for this month our invited speaker, Professor Bill McCarthy from the Michigan State University, to speak to us. Uh, the title of his talk today is the integration of an accounting domain ontology. Uh, their REA ontology with an upper ontology, which is the uh, SUMO uh, upper ontology. Uh, a brief introduction of Professor McCarthy. Uh, professor William E. McCarthy is Professor of Accounting and Information Systems at Michigan State University. He received his Arts Bachelor in Economics from Boston College. to work in UNCFACT 
Um, there are components of REA in the UNC fact meta model at the uh, the business requirements view stage. Like I said, we're also doing some um, work with the open EDI ontology, as it's called, with ISO that is heavily based on some of um, the REA ideas. And um, recently, we've gone through some changes with the model, especially with the behavioral components of it. Um, in particular, it's, um, its uh, use of state machine mechanics. Um, that's also a direction that I have to attribute to um, being pushed into by uh, Bob Haugen. And although we haven't actually got most of the uh, specifics of some of the things worked out, we'll talk about um, some of those components today. So what I'd like to do is very simply talk about what, uh, what REA is or has been, and then talk about its specific components with a series of slides that are mostly UML diagrams, and talk about where it's been historically and where it hopes to go. And then at the end of the presentation, which I, um, in the introduction before we started recording here, I, I mentioned to people we had hoped to do some more work with integrating it with the, uh, the SUMO, the Suggested Upper Merged Ontology, um, from IEEE, for which we, um, Adam Peace is the, uh, the principal person um, responsible. Um, and we're just starting to do some of that work. And actually, I hope that we have kind of a dialogue at the end sort of telling us what directions we need to go or how do we actually try to put some of these things together or are there things we need to undo or do or something else like that as we try to integrate um, this very specific accounting domain ontology. So I'm now going to advance to, um, I'm assuming everybody is on the slides. The first slide just very simply has my name and my uh, email address and my website. Um, so I'm going to go down to the second one here. Okay, So I'm on slide number two now. And it's got um, sources. Uh, we have two links here. The REA link is actually a paper that I just put together last week. It was It's an older paper um, that we've been using for a number of years. And what I did, if you uh, you link to the to the website, is I took the uh, the first and the second, the first and the third sections of that paper off, and just kept the middle in. Um, and we actually changed quite a few of the figures there. So the name of the paper is the Ontological Foundations of REA Enterprise Information Systems. And if you link to that, it goes to a Word document on my um, site. The co-author of that is Hito Hertz from the University of Delaware, who's also online with me here. Um, it's a very limited distribution working paper in the sense that um, it's worse than a draft. Like I said, I took the first and third sections out, but I just wanted people to be able to sort of see what the UML diagrams were and what it is we were proposing. Now, for Sumo, um, there's a number of places we can go to get some work, but the uh, the principal, uh, the seminal work is the paper mentioned here, Toward a Standard Upper Ontology um, by Adam and Ian Niles. Um, and that's also linked, that's to a PDF file um, that will bring it up from um, one of Adam's sites here. So um, those are the two primary sources here, although in some cases um, I've actually downloaded uh, large components of the Sumo um, uh, ontology and some subcomponents like Milo and the financial things and, and in an attempt to sort of see how this very specific domain ontology of REA fits in with Sumo. Okay, now I'm going to advance to um, slide number three and tell you people why we're doing this work or what's the motivation. Um, I guess in a lot of cases, people probably think of accounting as a very narrow domain. Um, I'm an accounting professor, so obviously I don't think that way. But it's a place that's, um, that is ripe for standardization, and it's, a ripe, it's very much ripe for change. And the reason is that the, 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 uh, the prevailing model in accounting 
believe it or not, actually predates Newton, predates Copernicus. It's more than 500 years old. Um, it actually was a, 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 a tool of, that was developed in the late Renaissance. And um, in a lot of ways, it's, um, it's leaking oil in a lot of ways. And um, the time is right to sort of look at it from a totally different perspective. And that is what REA intends to do. Now, since we're in the domain of accounting, uh, one of the nice things about REA is that most of its papers have been published in the field of accounting. So when I just say, here's a different way to sort of think about some of these things, it isn't just one person's ideas. It's one that has survived fairly rigorous peer review processes in a number of computer science and accounting journals. Um, although the, the version of the paper you see, it is certainly my and Hito's goal um, that we can try to get that one in some first-class accounting journal, too, most notably like the Accounting Review. That's why we're trying to make sure that we get everything right. So um, it's, a, um, it's a fairly well-established research model in a lot of ways. And it's also a way that a number of people actually teach accounting and teach accounting systems. As a matter of fact, we run a school here every year at Michigan State University that's sponsored by the American Accounting Association to teach accountants how to understand how enterprise systems in general work. And that workshop always runs on an REA perspective. So um, like I said, we've gravitated into the field of ontology in the last three to four years, primarily driven um, by the desire for interoperability in standard semantics. I really would like to see um, the types of accounting systems and business process systems we're talking about interoperable with a wide variety of supply chain finance and other types of um, enterprise systems. We think that we've got sort of the core of what any actual enterprise system needs in terms of the, um, the standard, what I would call business objects. But we're sort of trying to make some progress in seeing how far we have gone with that. Um, and since we've been working on ontology, we've been drawn into work, as I mentioned before, with the United Nations um, Trade Facilitation Group very early on with EBXML, um, more lately with the Business Process Group, although I couldn't afford to um, go to Kuala Lumpur this week. So I've uh, sort of played hooky on my last uh, Business Process Group. I'm hoping that uh, all of the work is still intact when they come back. Um, I've also uh, been working with the Open EDI Group of ISO. And there's been some work in the European community on using REA um, for interoperability as well. So. Um, the question of why SUMO is, um, is one that's uh, an interesting one. We're looking for an upper ontology because one of the standard criticisms of any kind of work like ours is that it needs to be connected to the general world above. And um, it seems that uh, SUMO is, a, is about the most logical candidate. Um, we want to make connections above with things um, like uh, time and space and uh, causality. We want to make connections to things below, because it turns out that SUMO and other um, more general ontologies talk about things like uh, measurement and counting, things that we don't really have the time to deal with in a detailed sense. Um, it has a lot of the things that I think REA has in the sense that it's, um, it's available. It's not, um, um, it's not intellectual property that you have to worry about someone coming down later on and sort of jumping uh, in and saying that you can't use this because or you need to charge a transaction. And it also has undergone some of the, um, the peer review that we also mentioned about REA in the sense that it's been reviewed worldwide on a n in a number of ways by experts in the field. 
so it's not just a uh, sort of a private effort that hasn't seen the light of day, especially with the applicable um, uh, domain experts. And it does seem to be it's tractable. It's, um, when I looked at some of the other possibilities, there's two wide-ranging. Like I said, we looked at John Sowers, which is very brief. Um, and we have done some analysis there. And then I, I quite frankly don't have the time or the wherewithal or the money to get into the more um, uh, traditional uh, upper-level ontologies like psych. So, and I sort of feel like for a variety of reasons, then Sumo have, will have a coming market presence in the sense that people like myself who are trying to develop a bed for their domain ontologies will probably be more um, attracted to Sumo for some of the reasons that I mentioned. Did you look at Dolce? Um, I, someone has mentioned Dolce to me, and I have not. Um, so it's on my to-do list, um, but I have not specifically looked at it. Um, one of the people on the forum last week uh, gave me a private call and asked me to go out there. Yes, but um, I have not. So it's certainly worth it's certainly worth looking at it. It, it, it reports to be a very similar artifact as Sumo, so it's worth looking at. Okay. Okay. To see what That'll. Uh, Hito, are you keeping a to-do list here? Yep, yep. Okay, all right. So, that's all right. So we we certainly um, can can go there. Uh, but actually, what we're looking for is a home, um, and I'm hoping that uh, Sumo is uh, the best for the variety of reasons that I mentioned there. So, okay, I'm going to uh, advance now to slide number four. And um, for those of you who've never seen me before, this is sort of a required part of my presentation. As a matter of fact, I tried to do a presentation at uh, the OMG last year, and I didn't put this slide in. And a few people got up and complained loudly. <laughs> so um, one of the things about um, REA, you have to understand that it's a very specific accounting um, ontology. And to understand exactly what we're trying to do, um, it always helps to use an example. And the example that I love to use um, because it tells people exactly what it is, and I can convey the um, uh, the essence of what we do very quickly, is the idea of a simple market exchange. And a uh, simple market exchange with known characters. Um, very often, if you're looking at the picture here of the Cookie Monster and Elmo, um, when I usually start off the presentation, I hold up Elmo, and I, excuse me, the Cookie Monster, and I ask pe people who it is, and they say, well, of course, it's a Cookie Monster. And he's got a dollar bill in his hand, or taped to his paw, or whatever. And um, I ask, is this a happy cookie monster? And there'll be some um, some parents there will say, no, of course not, because he's he's uh, he's not happy with money. He's he, the only thing that makes a cookie monster happy is a cookie. Um, so he's not, in economic terms, reached his highest level of utility. And on the other side of the screen, we have a cookie entrepreneur who's willing to enter an exchange for him, so he can reach his higher level of utility. So here we have a classic marketplace. Um, that exists between two agents, both of whom have something to exchange, and both of whom who have something to gain in terms of utility for actually doing the exchange. So whether or not it, like I said, occurs in person or in um, cyberspace or something else like that, what you would expect here is two economic events, and I want to emphasize that, two economic events, one where the possession of the cookie would go from um, uh, the, uh, the entrepreneur, who is Elmo, E for entrepreneur, and um, over to the customer, who is Cookie Monster, C for customer. That would be what accountants call a sale. It is uh, going from Elmo's, uh, excuse me, from Elmo's perspective, it's a transfer of a, a piece of inventory to a customer. Then uh, perhaps concurrently, or more often later on, what would happen is after the Cookie Monster um, 
got the cookie and ate it or did something else like that, he would then have to pay for it by sending some money over to Elmo. And that possession, that transfer possession, that resource transfer in accounting terms is called um, a payment um, or more specifically to Elmo, a cash receipt. So there's actually two things that are going to go on here. Um, and those are the primary components of RE and A's. That's where the model comes from. It deals with economic resources, which are things that are under the control of an, uh, an enterprise and have value. And there's two of them here, money and uh, inventory. It deals with economic events, which are transfers of resources. The sale of the cookie was a transfer of the cookie from one agent to the other. And the transfer of the dollar, the payment, was a transfer from uh, the cookie monster to, uh, to Elmo. And then it also deals, um, excuse me, those are the events. And then it also deals with agents who are presumed to be at arm's length or competing economic interests with each other in the sense that uh, they don't work for the same company. And actually, both of them are interested in maximizing their utility. So that's the sort of the stage there. And once you understand that, it's called an economic exchange. There's another type of primitive and uh, another type of concept in REA called a conversion, which we'll talk about, or a transformation. But it's very similar. And then on the next page, we have actually a database diagram. So I'm going to advance now to page number um, uh, four. Okay. Excuse me, page number five. And this just shows you the components of uh, the basic REA model. There are two um, uh, patterns here. The, uh, the left to right R, E, and two A's is where the model actually got its name. This component of it was actually published in the accounting review a number of years ago as a, um, as a way of designing databases. And that's certainly where most of its uh, teaching and its research work has gone during the last 20 years. So R, E, and A basically means resource, event, and agent. And like I said, the left to right constellation. And everybody might notice they're mirror images of each other. Now, this is a very specific model that's from the perspective of, um, of uh, one of the entrepreneurs who's here is, um, is Elmo. Okay, And we'll talk about that later on. It turns out that in a lot of our um, interoperability or collaboration space, these perspectives have to change a little bit. But this is always the easiest way to, um, to present it, at least initially. So we're actually building a model for Elmo's company here. So when we say give, we talk about Elmo giving away a resource. And we say take, we talk about Elmo taking a resource. So um, if we advance um, to the next slide, which is number six, you can see that um, we can actually fill these things in at the instance level. The economic resource involved in the give was cookies. The event where cookies go from um, the entrepreneur over to the customer is called, in accounting terms, a sale. Um, we'll talk about uh, something like a shipment later on. And then the uh, two people uh, who are participating at arm's length are somebody who works for the company. In this case, I'm assuming Elmo is his only employee, and somebody outside the company. And that is connected on the other side to the later event that we have, um, which is uh, the receipt of resources, or take for Elmo um, here, where he takes cash and a cash receipt. Again, the same two agents. Um, so that is sort of the instantiation of the basic REA pattern, at least for the Cookie Monster and Elmo example. 
And if we advance to the next slide now, which is going to be number seven, you can see the more general um, use of this, where we don't talk about the specifics, but we talk about the, uh, the, the, uh, the types of people or the entity sets that are involved with it, assuming that Elmo has salespeople working for him and cashiers working for him. And I think everybody realizes there wouldn't be two customers there. There would be only one block uh, for the economic outside agent. But the reason I keep it this way is just to show people that there's a symmetry going on here. Um, there are two instances of the pattern, and they're exact opposite. On one side, you have a resource that's flowing into the company. On the other side, you have a resource that's flowing out. The diamonds, um, in entity relationship form, um, they're just uh, um, associations or connections between the basic objects. So for instance, here, the connection between cookies and sales is called the stock flow in the sense that um, when you make a sale, the cookie uh, resource that you have goes down, so it's an outflow. Um, and then for cash and cash receipt, um, a cash receipt is an inflow to the cash account, so that stock flow there would be in or coming. And then, like I said, the inside and outside. Bill? Prob yes? Can I ask a question? Uh, in, yeah. in, in your sort of uh, calling duality, are, are you looking at the sort of the gift and the take as the duality, or do you also look at, let's say, a, a sale is sort of uh, also the, 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 the procurement or the purchase uh, for the other party? Um, th that's an interesting question, Peter, and we'll actually sort of get to that. Um, right. If this were being modeled from the Cookie Monster's perspective, I think you realize that the model would turn slightly upside down, and that's one of the problems when we go to collaboration space. Um, Yes, from the Cookie Monster's perspective here, the take would be the bottom one, or cash receipt. That would be called a purchase in accounting terms. A purchase means an inflow of inventory. A sale means an outflow of inventory. And um, as Bob Haugen noted many uh, years ago, that those terms are specific to somebody inside the um, inside a specific company. And later on in the ontology, we'll talk about that. But that duality there does not include the sale is linked to the purchase. Okay, It means that from the perspective of the person we're modeling for, at least now for the time being, that there's no free lunch. That if you um, are in business and you expect to get something, you have to give something up in very general terms. Duality happens to be most one of the most misunderstood terms in REA, and I must admit, um, in throughout my work with standards, it's the one thing that almost all the standards people, especially computer people, want to change. They don't like the term, but it's the one I'm most adamant about because it's actually um, adapted from a very specific economic and accounting source to say exactly what it is going on. In a very general sense, the duality there is almost, and I'm going to say almost, almost the same thing that has existed in accounting for 500 years under the general rubric of double entry bookkeeping. It's not Bill, quite the same. For reference, so Sumo has that, this uh, same dichotomy with uh, buying and selling being two separate events that are coincident. That's, that's, well, th that's an interesting, because that, that, that sort of helps us to tell how we're going to solve this problem. Um, so, Keto, uh, again, I, I hope you're taking notes here. Um, yes, because we we want to be able to say that those two incidents are coincident from a different perspective. And I'm not sure if it's to model it as one and then to say they're two, or to model it as two and try to treat them as coincident. And I would guess that Sumo does models it as two and treats them as coincident? Well, there, there are two different types of processes. There's a buying and a selling. 
and uh, you know you have a little bit of choice about how to model it. Um, but typically, you have you know say one kind of purchase event that has two sub events: a buying and a selling that have the same players in different roles. Right. Okay. Okay. We um, this is Mike. I should leave. In modeling the enterprise ontology some years ago, we puzzled over this one quite a lot. And we ended up defining a sale actually as an agreement between two parties. So there isn't actually an exchange that happens during a sale. A sale is just an agreement. You buy a car, nobody pays any money, nobody drives a car away. But mm -hmm. a sale occurs. So the sale is actually the agreement to exchange, you know, two economic resources in yeah, that's a, that's interesting, Mike, because one, one of the terms, sale is, is I, I don't want to use the term, but it's a reserved word. <laughs> that's the best term for it in accounting. One of the interesting things about the economic events as they're defined in REA is that on the, an, on the in occurrence of an economic event, if you were doing your books, they would hit the general ledger. In other words, you would find something that would affect. And the way you just defined the sale, it would not hit the general ledger. Believe it or not, oh. that is true. Interesting. So just well, actually, some that? companies have pushed that envelope in trying to recognize sales when they only have orders, but those people are all in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so, so, um, you would, so in your terminology, if I go to the, to the, to the car salesman, and I, from my perspective, I bought the car today, right. signed on the dotted line, you know, blah, 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 and then at some point later, the money will exchange and I will drive away. So you're saying right. that in your terms, sale hasn't occurred. Well, at least it hasn't hit the list. At least we, well, let's put it this way. We have a term for that. Um, it's an agreement or a contract that we'll show you later on, okay, okay? when we actually start to talk about those things. Right. Um, accountants deal on what they call the, the critical event. And, and typically, in, by business practice, there's a critical event that occurs during a sale. It's a, it's a sub part of a sale or a task that's associated with it, that when that thing occurs, people are allowed to book it one way or the other. And that's the thing that's been abused by a lot of the Internet sellers. Um, the, the critical event they've had is just very simply getting an order, and they've actually booked them as revenues. And accountants have very specific terms. So the way we use it in, in REA is an economic event always means it hits the books in terms of the general um, financial statements, income statements, and balance sheets. And from an accounting perspective, that's all that matters. Um, unfortunately, that's probably true, yes. But from an everyday perspective, it would be viewed differently. Ah, that's exactly the point. We're trying to get the, the, both people from an everyday perspective and from an accounting perspective to call the same things the same so that everybody can use the same thing. Well, you don't have to call them the same thing, but you mm -hmm. just have to all agree what they are. Okay, uh, excellent point. And what we're trying to do is to try to um, to make sure that these terms are usable by everybody, by the by the by the salespeople, by the marketing people, by the supply chain people, and not just the accounting people. And actually, in most cases, um, ERP systems have evolved the way you've thought it, where the common business sense is the core of the ERP, and the the accounting is sort of pushed out to the uh, the general ledger at the end. What we're trying to do is keep the two of those together. I think ultimately it's going to be a no-win solution to try to get everybody to agree by using the same terms. So uh, the I have I have faith that we are going to uh, pull everybody together. But I. So. All right. Um, are there any more questions? Yeah. One more question on this. I mean, is this uh, packed to the change of title, or is the change of title just a consequence of I mean hitting the book? The change of title is actually what they would call the critical event here. 
So when the, when the change of title occurs, a sale has occurred. The critical event is that the, the, uh, the, the economic resource has transferred property, has transferred property rights, at least in an exchange. And what do you call the, the, the agreement to exchange, what I would call the sale? When uh, we call that an agreement or a contract. That's actually coming up. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, gosh, all these things. I, I, uh, that's the nice thing about having a co-author online here is able to sort of keep track of all of these uh, excellent comments here. Okay, I'm going to advance the slide a little bit here. Um, this is a, a very easy one um, to see, but the simple fact of the matter is in selling this to an accounting audience, you have to convince them that they can still do the accounting. And I think you probably realize if anybody's ever had an accounting class, if they saw Cookie Monster and Elmo do what they just did, they have an entirely different model to model that with. And one of the things is if you're going to propose a new sort of business object or semantic-based one, you have to convince them that they can still do the other things that they've done. So in this case, for instance, the, on the prior um, slide, and now I'm on slide number um, eight, um, there are some uh, components from our relational database. Um, like uh, Oracle or Access or something else like that, where each of the, the business objects, in some cases, the connections between the business objects become a, um, a database table. And so, for instance, one of the things I often ask students is, where does the number 1475 that is circled in red here come from? What happened? Once upon a time, what happened? And the students can say, well, once upon a time, on invoice number I1, if they go up to the table on the upper right, um, someone bought five of product P2, which you can go over and see is a chocolate cookie at 95 cents, and 10 of P3, um, which is a chocolate chip cookie at a dollar five, and, excuse me, of a peanut butter cookie at a dollar, and then they can sort of do the extension, and they can say, oh, I can use this so I can also do the real accounting, and I don't have to put it through a, a, a journalization and a ledger process. I can do the accounting, and I can also keep um, the supply chain, the management, and all those people happy. So behind all of this, REA, in a, in a very um, extended history sense, has been um, the push toward integrated databases. Um, as opposed to sort of specifically interoperability, it's been um, a common database and a common term for which you can do accounting and the other uses of it. So, okay. And I also ask students where the twenty dollars comes from. And it's in green there, and they can say, well, once upon a time someone bought something for twenty dollars, and it appears that their terms, if you were to try to guess what the terms are, but you can specify those in REA. Um, is that uh, they pay 10% down. You can see a cash receipt that occurs for $2, and that 90% is paid for within three days. So we're trying to be able to embody in the semantics here things um, like accounting. When they say 210 net 30, that means 2% uh, discount if you pay within 10 days. The net has to be paid within 30 days. We're trying to put those things actually into the semantics of the system so that they don't have to be interpreted by people that the, uh, the actual terms can be um, embedded in the database so that we can check, actually, that they, they, they've, they've met the, uh, the control semantics they're supposed to. All right, I'm going to advance the slide here now to um, slide number nine. Okay, um, this is uh, something that people have been asking me to do for a long time. This is a, a lame attempt at an elevator pitch for REA. Um, so basically, what we do with REA is that, um, and for the last 20 years, is we do the things at the top. We, we try to keep track of what actually occurred in a resource flow perspective. And you can see the components of that are economic resources, economic events, and economic agents. In the mirror image, 
connected by a duality. So what we're keeping track of there is the past, and to a lesser extent, the near present. Because, of course, if, um, if the cookie monster got the cookies and has not yet paid the money, you can predict the near present in the sense that there's a claim for money, and you can sort of presume that the, uh, the cash receipt is going to occur in short order, or there's going to be a sale return or something like that. Okay. All right, now I'm getting static. Can people still hear me? Is there something that I need to do, Peter? This is Bill McCarthy. I, I can't hear people now. Bill, can you hear me? I can hear you very faintly. Okay. Um, if anybody wants to talk to me, they're going to have to be really loud now because I'm getting some static on the line. Okay. Um, I'm assuming that I'm going to go through unless people stop me uh, and that you can still hear me. I can't. Do it. Oh, someone cannot. Well, no, I mean, I could, but I'm not going to listen to Ah, there we go. online. Um, so we're on slide number nine again, and uh, we're talking about the elevator pitch for REA. Now what you see in the top box there um, is actually something that existed for 20 years as we tried to sort of take um, accounting systems and to make them more semantic. And what's happened in the last um, eight or nine years, actually uh, since my collaboration with Hito, um, who came over from Belgium and started studying at Michigan State, was that we, we started to take some extensions to this to try to think about, let's be more ambitious and not try to just sort of see what happens in a resource flow and inflow and outflow sense. In other words, we're not happy just to do the normal accounting, but we want to talk about um, extended time. So uh, one of the first things that we started to do was we said, um, if in fact you took abstract specifications of what you were doing, so, for instance, the sale of the cookie could be characterized as a retail sale or a wholesale sale. The resource could be characterized as um, a certain type of chocolate cookie or a certain type of peanut butter cookie. And the agent could be specified as um, a good customer or a not-so-good customer or something else like that. What we wanted to do was to move up the level of specification in terms of its abstraction and be able to talk about not only what happened in the past, but to try to specify what could happen in the future. And that's the second panel I have there. We wanted to be able to move from what actually occurred to specifications of what could be or what should be. And um, that's what we, we get into the type level specifications, which I'm not quite sure. The Adam, I'm really sort of um, unsure about how Sumo handles this exactly. So we can, when we get to that point, we can actually talk about that. Um, but we wanted, to, like I said, to move up to a level of specification. And I have a slide that shows you exactly what's going on here. This is very important, especially in the Sarbanes-Oxley, which is the internal control um, bill that Congress passed two years ago. Because it now, besides keeping track of their, um, their resources, companies actually have to have internal control policies, like which type of agent, which type of employee is allowed to have custody of which type of asset, or which type of employee is allowed to authorize what type of, of events. 
So actually moving things up a level of specification and putting controls or policies into it has become increasingly important. And then the bottom panel there, we have yet another extension, which we decided. Um, this is the one that I think Mike is probably most interested in. We decided to uh, extend it into the future and talk about not only resource transfers, but promises to make resource transfers happen in the future. And this is where certainly people like Bob Haugen got very interested in REA, because um, it takes it from being an accounting model to being a very, very strong supply chain model. Because, um, for instance, in Michigan, I'm sure everybody realizes the automobile industry is run not so much on records of what's happened or what's going to happen today, but what is committed or promised to happen in the future. And actually, um, in the Automobile Industry Action Group, we have now interoperability groups where people can look down the line at the next tier supplier to see in their manufacturing um, which of the tires that are supposed to get here next Monday, where are they in the manufacturing? And um, have they committed to make them? Have they committed to ship them? And can I go ahead and schedule my things as, um, as, as I plan to next week? So we added to this um, basic R, E's, and A's the idea of not just an event, but a commitment or a promise to execute an event in the future. So we actually went from um, doing the accounting to try to put some of the policies on top of that to try to put some of the commitments which sort of interact between the abstract level and the past-present level together. So those are the sort of the, the three temporal views of what's going on. It doesn't quite break down to past, present, and future, but it comes close to that. OK, am I making sense? Can I advance? Yep. OK, all right. So let's go on to the next slide. And um, I apologize for going so slow, but I can go quicker now because we've given you sort of the overview. Um, now, the figures that I'm going to show at this point are actually figures from the paper, except in this case they're color-coded just to show how all these things fit together. So um, here are the primitives of the basic REA model. Again, they're resources, events, and agents. And as we saw before, they don't exist in isolation. They are mirror images. So if you have one pattern that involves um, one person giving up something, that person expects to get something back. So but those are the basic primitives, um, the resource, the event, the agent, and the, uh, the, um, the associations or the relationships between the two. What do you mean by duality? Yeah, duality is uh, going back to the cookie monster example. It means that there's no such thing as a free lunch. So if I get something from you, I'm expected to give something back to you. Okay, it's like I said, the whole idea of business that um, yeah, we're exchanging so both of us can get to a place we want to get to because you have something that I want, I have something that you want, and we exchange. Uh, we'll also talk about conversions to it, but duality is that thing between the two. Okay, all right. Now, um, the next slide, and I'm uh, advancing the slides here, so I'm on slide number 11, is one that I'm um, going to very quickly mention in the paper. Hito and I actually took these, and we said, now that we've defined the basic primitives, we can define some other primitives on top of it, including some things that are very important in an accounting sense. So we have a custody relationship between, for instance, an economic agent and an economic resource. Um, because in accounting, it's very important that, for instance, if you're the inside person on a transaction that affects resources going out, you're not actually allowed to have custody of those resources in some kind of internal control separation of duties thing. Is okay? custody what we would call ownership in a normal sense? I own my car. Um, no. Ownership is a stronger form of custody. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I might just put that one off for a second, but custody here means only physical overseeing of it. So, for instance, um, I have a computer right here that's not mine. It belongs to uh, Michigan State University, so I have custody of it, but I don't own it. Right, right, right. right. Okay. So it's like possession. Uh, right, right. Okay, and then um, there's a, a, another um, a primitive down there that I'm not going to talk about extensively, but it's one that in EBXML um, there was a strong need for. It's explained in the in the, uh, the original REA paper quite well, I think. The whole idea of an economic claim, which is an imbalance in a duality relationship. That's where the the give has occurred, but not the take, or vice versa. And that's a very complex accounting issue that I don't want to get into here. But underneath the concepts of economic claim, we have um, other classes like loans or um, debt and equity. So um, I'm not going to go into those here. That's a place that we could actually talk about a long time if people want to talk um, in strictly accounting terms. But let me advance the slide here. Um, so I'm going to go now to slide number uh, 12. And um, we're going to show you now actually what Hito and I call the three-level uh, architecture of REA systems. You can see in the middle here we have a, um, a business process with two REA patterns with a give and a take. Now, this is not the cookie monster. This is actually based on a rent-a-car company that's just down the street from here in, at, uh, at Michigan State University. But in this particular case, the company rents cars. So the, um, the give at the top is a rental contract where they give away the use of the car and the inside and outside agents of the customer and the rental agents. And then the, uh, the duality is the cash receipt that hap actually happens at the, uh, the end. The interesting thing is, um, as constituted, two matching patterns there have uh, fit exactly the definition of a business process, which is where an entity gives up some resources to transform them into another resource that is of uh, value to the customer. That is the classic Michael Hammer and uh, Champy definition of business process is two economic events, two economic events connected where you give up something so you can get something else. And the whole idea of a business process is to construct um, a portfolio of attributes that you give to your customers at the end. So for instance, um, uh, giving the car to the customer at the end also involves that you acquire the car up front and that you maintain the car. Now, what we did was, and I'm going to advance to the next slide now, so I'm going to go to slide number 13, was to connect this idea of having modeling of a business process to the more general idea of why do businesses string these processes together in some kind of purposeful way. And what you have at the top of the process right here now is what Michael Porter at the Harvard Business School calls a value chain, which is a connected, uh, a connected network of business processes, each of which has the REA pattern, so it has two matching patterns, with the purpose of giving away some resource to getting another so that when you get to the final end, which in this case is the revenue process, you construct a portfolio of attributes that are of interest to the ultimate customer. So um, this entrepreneur, for instance, um, gave away, if you look at the top left of the slide, gave away money so he could get people's labor. He gave away cash so he could get a car. He gave away the use of the car for some uh, period of time and some cash so that he'd get a maintained car. And then he gave away the use of the maintained car to get some cash. So what we do in the three-level architecture is connect the individual business process, which is the thing in the middle, that's modeled with the thing to the whole idea of a value chain, which is a connected network of business processes. Okay. Now I'm going to advance to the next slide. So we'll go to slide number 14 here. And um, we'll show the other part of the three-level architecture, which is um, 
to make a, these events happen, the uh, economic events happen, you often have to do um, less granular transactions or tasks, as they're sometimes called, or business events, as we're now calling it in the REA um, model. And um, for instance, to make a rental contract occur, you can go down to the bottom and see that you have to um, do things like accept the customer contract, assess the customer needs, check the car file and choose. So all of those are individual tasks or business events. And then doing them in concert allows you to accomplish the rental contract. So again, these are the technologically the most volatile things down at the bottom. Um, we call them tasks or business events. And I suspect that many people on the line have rented cars over the course of the last 10 or 15 years and seen, for instance, that the top two parts of this model for a rental car company does not change. But what does change and what tends to be highly volatile is the set of tasks that happen down the bottom. Those are the things that are often changed with business process reengineering. Now, collectively, and some people might not like the term, we refer to those as the workflow of the company. Those are the individual tasks that are needed to, to make the value-added economic events occur in the network of value chain. Okay, so um, now in the latest issue of the ontology, this is actually based on an older paper. We're actually putting this in in UML form, and I must admit I did this in about um, some quick time without even asking Hito um, if what he thought of it in the latest version. So we're trying to sort of put these things together, as it shows in um, slide 15 or figure four that an economic event um, is composed of a workflow, which consists of a number of business events and that um, a business process consists of two economic events in a duality relationship, and a value chain is a network series of business processes. So we're trying to make very specific terms for all of those concepts based on the primitives that we showed you on the first page for an economic event, an economic resource, and an economic agents. The, uh, the most troublesome one here, and one that's really given us a lot of problem, is the whole idea of what a business event is. It's an occurrence in time that management needs to um, plan, control, and evaluate, or see that it actually is happening. So you're making some progress in creating value for the customer. OK, any questions? OK. Yeah, so I'll, I have one. All right. It's and this is Marsha. Mar uh, who's on? It's Monica. OK, yeah, Monica. Yeah, um, okay. uh, do you guys, uh, maybe you could uh, differentiate uh, a business event or an event from a process step, because um, there's many understandings of what an event is. Right. This is one of the hardest things and something I'm hoping Adam has some insights to um, uh, at the end here. Um, th those two things are essentially synonymous, Monica. So um, a step in a process in a business event, a business event is a component of a business process. Okay, that's all. It's some something that tells you you've made some progress in accomplishing the tasks involved in making the business process occur. And we've got a very simple, um, not a simple, uh, a very uh, elaborate way of sort of seeing how those business events make or step you through process um, that's going to come on later on. So th this, is, this is a very, very um, difficult thing to do. It's difficult for students to learn, and it's difficult for business people to use. Our definition of business event is given in the, uh, the slimmed down paper. There's two of them. One is it's an occurrence in time that management wishes to plan, control, and evaluate. The other one is 
it's something that takes a business object from one state to the next state. And we'll talk about that later on. So, But um, event and the, the, uh, the definition of an event and whether or not they're instantaneous or they have duration is a very, very difficult ontological problem. And um, uh, Adam refers to it in the, uh, the seminal paper that I mentioned at the beginning. And there are even um, some ontologies that would, that would contend that there are no such things as events. And uh, that's, um, for instance, the Bunga ontology. And um, obviously is not at all um, compatible with the ideas of business processes and accounting events and accounting transactions. OK? Was that an answer acceptable? Monica? I, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I think uh, many people in the technology world would debate what an event is. Right. right. Yeah. But that's a different level of discussion. Well, we have um, the UML definition of event sort of assumes um, instantaneous. Am I guessing that correctly? I've been told that by a number of people. I haven't actually dug through the UML 2.0 spec. But that turns out to be a common problem. The way we define events here, uh, they clearly have duration. As a matter of fact, some of them are weeks and months long. So, all right, I'm going to advance the next slide here to number 16. Um, now, this is a slide that very simply shows you what we mean by the whole concept of typing. And this is a place where, um, Adam, uh, we're not quite sure how Sumo does this um, in the same way. But what we call typification is an abstraction mechanism actually taken from the database literature from Diane and John Smith and from um, a researcher in VLDB called Sakai. It's, um, it's a two-step process where, for instance, we're looking at economic agents there classified as economic agents. So there's five tokens there. And um, we put them into two different groups, a group of salespeople and a group of cashiers. And then um, in the next step of the process, we start to talk about those groups um, in a somewhat abstract sense. So I'm going to um, now advance to um, slide from slide 16, which just shows the bottom, to slide 17, and show what we call a typification operation, which is taking the things that occur in the basic transaction and coming up with an abstract concept of what they should be. Oh. So yes, Adam? Yeah, so just brief comment on this. So, so I mean, Sumo does uh, uh, this sort of typification, as, as you call it. Um, there are just two distinctions to keep in mind that there are uh, classifications that are, in some sense, essential. That is, the, the object that sort of ceases to exist. Right. There are roles. That's a, a primary distinction that a lot, a lot of technologies don't make uh, and we think is fairly important. Okay. Actually, we're having some trouble defining this in a separate paper, so we might actually pursue that with you if you've got some insights into doing that. So. Bill? Yes, Bob. Uh, another, this is Bob Haugen. Another very pragmatic view of this, when I implement this stuff in a programming language, uh, a, 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 a type, an REA type, um, is not exactly the same as a class in an object-oriented uh, view of the world. It is a lot more like a frame in a frame-based system. Right. In, a, right. In, a, in other words, in a, in a, this is actually the way it is in an ERP system, too. Mm -hmm. uh, in an ERP system, for example, you're going to have something that represents inventory, which are economic resources, products, 
that are under the control of the company. Right. And then you are going to have something that's called an item master or a product master, which right. is a file of economic resource types. And those economic resource types are uh, uh, have a, uh, a lot of properties and actually have behaviors of their own. Right. Uh, when Ralph Johnson does this stuff in an active object model, the 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 REA types are more like factories for for creating instances of the 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 resource or the agent or the event. Now so, we haven't made that link yet, Bob. So uh, Hito, we need to do that. So okay. Well, there, there's you, you know basic basically what I'm basically what I'm saying is that is that is that it's a lot more active a concept than, let's say, a Java class is. Okay, right, right. There's actually two kinds of, um, in a database sense, and I realize this is not quite the same as uh, an AI sense or an ont ontological uh, philosophy sense. There's two kinds of abstraction going on here. One is from the individual tokens, like Tom, Dick, and Ashley, to a class that's going on down below. Um, database people call that a token type abstraction or classification. And then going from the type to the types, which is actually happening on the right-hand side of um, slide number 17 to the top, is something that's called typification. And I think maybe in um, in uh, knowledge representation and ontology, those terms aren't quite the same. Maybe the same two problems occur, but we have to figure out the different names that people are calling them in this field. So. Yeah, Johnson's been actually interested in REA in a lot of ways, but we can't keep him. He's got too many other irons in the fire, it turns out. So um, he kind of flits in and out of the community. All right, I'm going to turn down to the next slide, um, which actually shows you that um, if you do indeed take the types um, of all of these things, what you do is you take a look, first of all, what actually occurred. That's the, the initial transaction with Cookie Monster and Elmo. And then when you take their, res their type images, or the typification, you can start to move them up to a level of policy, like things that should occur or that would occur um, as a matter of standards or as a matter of policy. So um, I'm on slide number 18 right now, and I'm going to go right ahead to slide number 19, which is actually in the paper. Um, I'm using a color coding sense here so that when we, when we go to the old diagram, we put all of these things on one page. People can see that we've talked about all the components in some fashion. So here is um, figure seven from the paper that was referenced at the beginning that just very simply shows you um, at the bottom is the what has occurred, and those are the terms for them. And if we typify them, we um, then can connect the, uh, the types at the top to come up with policies or standards. For instance, between the agent type and the event type would be only a manager, only a person serving in the role of manager is allowed to authorize a sale of type greater than 10,000 or something else like that. Okay. All right, so that's the types. That's the sort of the extension to what could be or what should be. Now, the next two slides I'm going to go over really quickly. Um, this just shows you some of the, um, the uh, um, what I would call the taxonomic structure of REA. And as opposed to SUMO, we don't deal much with taxonomies. Almost all the relationships we have between primitives are what I would call, in a database sense, aggregation, um, relations between things like the relationship between an economic event and an economic agent, and not so much is our relationships right here. Um, this slide is actually taken from the ISO Open EDI work. And I found after repeated references that it makes no sense in a uh, 
sort of an enumerative sense to go more than down two levels. So for instance, for OpenEDI, an economic resource is defined to be um, something of value under the control of an identifiable um, uh, agent. And it's divided up into classes of goods, services, and rights. And then goods have those classes down below, and services have those classes. But these are not meant to be enumerative. They're not meant to be exhaustive in every sense, which is quite a bit different from Sumo, because Sumo really tries to get the whole world into these um, taxonomies right here. And it's, um, it's a very different, um, uh, much more ambitious, <laughs> I might say, mindset. We're just trying to get the top levels sort of straight and maybe get on a, a level or two to show people what actually could um, be used as the patterns to use. And what Adam and the other um, upper-level ontology people are trying to do is that they're going after the, the, the work of trying to figure out exactly what all of those things actually should be. So. Well, just a quick comment. Yes. So, I mean, Sumo's really trying to address both, though. I mean, so uh, people fairly often just look at the taxonomy and say, you know, Sumo is fundamentally a taxonomy, and of course it is that, but it also has, uh, you know, all of the sort of partonomic relations and, and various other relations that one would expect to find in ontology that, that, you know, is covering the sort of information that you have in the slide here. And maybe one difference is just that something like an economic resource is really relevant uh, relative to a particular purpose. It's a role. And so one wouldn't expect to find that as a named class in Sumo, but it's rather a relationship between an object and something, uh, but some entity that imbues that object with a certain value. Okay, that's a very good point. I perhaps overstated the case there, because when you look at Sumo, it does look like most of it is um, taxonomies. But you're right; there, there are certainly the uh, the relations that are allowed to put the, the, that are used to put the things together. So perhaps I overstated the case there. So. Which slide are you on? Um, I'm sorry, I'm on slide uh, uh, number twenty. Yes. Uh -huh. Okay, now I'm going to quickly advance to slide number 21, which does the same thing for an exchange for the economic agents. And I realize this is a very limited taxonomy, but these are the terms that are used in the open EDI. So this is a subtypes of agent only for an economic exchange. It has not uh, the, uh, the agents that are used for an internal um, business process, like making an Oldsmobile. This is only a market transaction between two people. And these are all the parties that they've identified as relevant. Um, they divide them up into the primary people, and then third-party people who actually provide some of the sources, and also a regulator. So um, again, this is not an attempt to be exhaustive. It's just an attempt to sort of define things as uh, subclasses of the basic primitives. All right, I'm going to switch over here now to slide number 21, excuse me, slide number 22. Now, if we still have Mike on the line, um, I hope we didn't lose him. Um, this shows you which were, this was an extension to REA that sort of got us into the to the uh, supply chain and really probably why most of the standards people are now interested in the work. Nobody really cares about doing accounting in a standard way in the, uh, in the, on the internet, okay, because it seems like a solved problem. Um, but the commitments for these things are really important. So to the basic ideas of economic events, which we have down the bottom there, which we've already defined, okay, connected by a duality relationship, we add the idea of a commitment. And a commitment is a promise to execute an economic event at some time in the future. If you promise to pay for my car, I promise to have the guy drive it here and bring it out and let you go home with it or something else like that. Now, um, commitments, um, like I said, are promises, and they always, recur they always occur, at least in um, economic terms, also in pairs. 
there's sort of the, the commitment um, equivalent of a duality is what we call a reciprocal relationship. So for instance, if I have a purchase order in the automobile industry that says every Monday um, I will bring a certain number of tires to your factory, um, the reciprocal of that is every Tuesday you deposit the money into my account. So um, like I said, it's a promise that's connected. The relationship between commitments and economic events we call fulfills, or uh, in older parts of the ontology it's called executes, but um, I must admit the standards people beat me down on this one. Fulfills is actually a better word um, on this. Uh, the relationship between them is an economic event um, fulfills a commitment in some sense. Now it turns out the commitments are sometimes very, very complicated, and when you need to bundle them, you have to uh, reify the relationship, the reciprocal relationship, and that leads to the idea of an economic agreement, which is a bundle of commitments on both sides. Um, so simple commitments, like if you just promise to do one thing and I promise to do something back, you don't actually need the economic agreement or the contract, which is a subclass of agreement. You can just get by with the commitments and the reciprocals. but. Um, we put the more complicated case into the ontology and then tell people that the more simple case can be used. We are only expecting a one-to-one -one correspondence. So this actually is a, a quite um, big change in what we've done in the past. It's, um, like I said, it, it brings it um, from not only what occurred, but what is promised to occur in the future and becomes very, very important because um, pull systems um, work from signals. A sale order from a customer causes uh, a commitment to uh, manufacturing, which is a production order, which is causes commitments from the, uh, the bill of materials into uh, raw material requisitions, which cause commitments for purchase orders, which cause an upline sale order for the next person down the line. And it allows people to sort of connect all of these things together to figure out exactly how everything is going to work as you sort of plan how your business is running in close concert with your other business partners. So a relatively simple extension, like I said, but one that certainly is, um, is very, very important. So, and this is how we deal with the cars, Mike. So, okay. Um, this is why, for instance, REA is being used in the, uh, the UN, UBAC, the Universal Business Agreements and Contracts, because um, these are the same types of things in legal terms and in accounting terms that you're actually talking about, promises um, to do things on both sides. So, okay. Question? Um, I'm going to extend now to slide number 23, which just shows you um, in a very general sense, and this is not meant to be exhaustive. It's not claimed to be exhaustive. Um, but this is how the idea of promises to do things in the future relates to abstract specifications of things that actually do occur. And we say that a commitment in general um, will usually specify a resource type. In other words, if you commit, um, if you promise to execute an economic event, it is often the case that you don't have a specific resource, like a specific piece of inventory, um, but a type of inventory. And less, um, less commonly, um, you also specify with the commitment, I promise to do it under the auspices of this event type, like under a retail sale or a wholesale sale or another class of events. And for instance, I need certain people to fill certain roles. So for instance, if it's a dangerous cargo type of shipment, you need a sort of an authorized truck driver or something else like that. So it often happens with the commitments when you specify what you're going to do in the future, you don't specify the exact things. You specify at the type level, I need these types of resources, these types of events, and these types of agents. I must admit this is not normative. We, these are not all required in the sense that the 
like our E's and A's were. That's a way of modeling, um, taking the type and the abstract specification and tying it down to the promises. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? All right, I'm hearing a lot of silence. In my classes, I'd be getting worried, but I could see people's faces. Um, so I'm going to sort of swap on to the next slide here. Um, I'm going to go over this one relatively quickly, but one of the things that we um, uh, found out when we started to model business processes is that they occur in predictable phases. And these phases for a business process, they're actually phases for an external business process, but they work also for an internal business process, are taken exactly out of the OpenEDI work um, by two researchers from Canada. Um, uh, Jake Knoppers is one, and David Clemens is the other, um, who actually sort of took all the business uh, things they could find and found out that most business processes were broken down into these phases. If you think about it in a cookie monster in an Elmo sense, it's where the two of them try to find each other, and then they identify each other as possibilities for trading based on the types of things they offer. Then they go through a negotiation phase where they say, you know, I'll buy this many cookies under these shipping conditions for $10, and someone comes back with a counteroffer or something else like that. Then once the, the deal is done, the negotiation is finished, and the agreement and the commitments are in place, then there's the actual shipment of the cookies and the actual payment of the money. And then post-actualization usually deals with object, what object people call the, the non-happy path, um, the sales returns and allowances or the late payments or what happens when people screw up, which also have to make their way into the, uh, the specification, the abstract specification of the system. OK, I'm going to go ahead and advance this slide now to um, number 25. And I'm seeing my time here, so I'm going to um, do something that uh, teachers are allowed to do, I guess. And I'm going to skip over the next two slides. So I'm going to skip over number 25, and I'm going to skip over number 26. Okay, And I'm going to uh, then go to slide number 27, which says the ISO collaboration ontology, which, as people can see, very simply takes all the things we've been talking about for the last um, half hour to 45 minutes and puts them all together in a, um, in a model. This is only for an external collaboration, not for an internal business process. But people can see how actually all of these things fit together. Okay. So, um, and then I'm going to go from there to slide number 28, which actually shows you um, uh, how all of these things fit together in the UML diagram um, for all business processes. So it takes all the prior slides and puts them into one big thing, except this one is not color-coded because it's part of the paper. Okay? All right. Um, now, I'm going to um, uh, go from slide number 27. Okay? Um, and again, I'm going to sort of skip here. I hope people don't mind. Um, because I want to talk about, let's, let's now sort of isolate ourselves. This is the basic REA ontology. And the next four slides deal with what we call the state machine, which actually shows you how you can use these business objects. If you think of everything on slide number 28 as a business object that goes through phases um, to keep track of a collaboration, um, that's what the what's explained in very general terms in the paper. But now what I'm planning to do, and again, I want to sort of go ahead from slide number 28. I'm going to go up to um, um, uh, slide number 31, which actually shows uh, under figure 15 the state machine di uh, diagram. And we show how um, each of the business objects, like in this particular case, a, um, a an economic resource type can be first um, put into state a candidate, in other words, between the two trading partners, it now becomes a candidate for trade between them. 
And then when one partner sends a price list or a quote list, it can move into state planned, which means that this economic resource now is planned for a future transaction. It then can move into state identified, which means that both the trading partners and the specific type of resource have been identified. And then you can make proposals as you go back and forth through the contract negotiation stage. And then finally, you could actually um, uh, do the trade. So um, again, here I'm going to move um, from slide number 31. Um, slide number 32 actually uh, is from a, a Japanese contributor to ISO. And this shows you the problem we started talking about right at the beginning, where Adam mentioned we're going coincident events. And I must admit, this is, uh, could also be called the Bob Haugen slide, because he was one of the first people to actually recognize this. Um, if you look at slide number um, 20, excuse me, I'll get the one down the bottom here. Oops. I'll identify it in a second here. If we look at slide number 32, um, you can see that there, there's two perspectives. And the perspective that I gave you originally for Elmo and Cookie Monster is the red perspective. In this particular case, it was the perspective of um, Elmo, who was looking at the transfer of cookies um, from himself to a business partner in Enterprise number two. That would be the Cookie Monster as a sale. But you'll notice that from the Cookie Monster perspective, it was actually a purchase. And that's the thing that Adam talked about. Um, the, from the, those two perspectives, both of those things are different. And what we've tried to do um, in the newer versions of the ontology is move up to the top level perspective, which is the independent view. Um, Haugen has a very nice name for this. He calls it the helicopter view, which is the view looking not from within a particular company, but over all the companies. And this is a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, it takes away a lot of the naming conventions, for instance, that accountants have used for years, because all of those naming conventions are from the red perspective of the trading partner and not from the independent view of the person above both of the companies. So it has some very, very strong ontological naming uh, implications, which we hope to explore at least a little bit with Adam. Um, what do you do with this, Adam? You, you model both of them and then say that they're part of the same thing? Um, so typically, you'd create instances of, of both and then uh, put them as sub-events of an overall sort of financial transaction? OK. OK. Yeah. Um, uh, I've, I've, Bill, I, uh, this is uh, Bob Haugen again. I, yeah. I've, th there's three situations where I directly implement the independent view. Uh, one of them is one of them is, and I've done this a couple of times, and it is where you have something like an internet marketplace or a collaborative system where companies meet and do deals. Right. In that case, instead of having my purchase order and your sales order, the marketplace will have one instance of this agreement. And that's um, what our goal is to do that. Beg pardon? That's what our goal is, to actually do the one instance. Yeah, so, so. so I'm still going to look at it as my purchase order, and you're still going to look at it as your sales order. But in actual fact, in the, in, the, in, the, in the marketplace or collaborative system, there is only one instance. Right, and, right. And I just tend to call that an order. 
Okay. Um, yeah, you're aware that we have had to change the terms. For instance, terms like cash receipt, cash disbursement, purchase, sale, inside agent, outside agent, all of those things cannot be used from the black perspective above. And that uh, in, in the collaboration standards work, that has caused a real change in the, in the way you can actually um, uh, name the things. I'm yeah, sort of thinking about Adam's perspective of doing both and binding them back together here That's as a, as a possible way to get around this. Yeah, I think the black perspective then is this becomes the superordinate event. Yeah. But, uh, I, I need to, we need to talk a lot more so I can make sure that I'm, I'm fully understanding what you're getting at here. So I don't, I'm, giving you, I'm giving you very preliminary advice, which is conditional on the fact that I, I may not understand what you're saying. Right, and I realize that I had to pick up the pace here. But, um, there, there's, so, two, there's two other use cases that you might want to consider, you know, as far as, as, far as where these, stuff, these views actually get materialized. The, the other one, and this is where the helicopter view name came from, is that you're looking at a whole supply chain or value system, uh, uh, views of that from the standpoint of somebody that is managing the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So as I, you, you, are the, you are the supply chain manager, and there are many companies and internal and external organizations that are involved in this thing, and they each have their, they're each going to have their own perspective, but you're going to look at the whole thing. So you're going to look at 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 a uh, at, at at an order as as being some planning event that that you're looking at in its unified form. Um, okay. The third use case is uh, economic econometric analysis, for example, input output charts. Okay. Or you're looking at a whole industry. Or right. business right. cluster, and you're looking at the the input output relationships between processes. Right. Now, there's been some preliminary work done in Spain on the um, the input output at the industry type level. I must admit, I haven't kept track of their progress in that regard. So, yeah. using Leonti for linear programming. Right. Or? Exactly. Leonti is the is the person that uh, yeah. they always yeah. mention. Yeah. Yeah. Leonti is the, the daddy of all this stuff. Right. Right. So yeah. So when. But, but you can take the same REA perspective and you can jump it up to those different levels, mm -hmm. to, to the marketplace level where you're both where both trading partners are looking at the same set of commitments and events, or to the supplier chain of value system level where you're looking at a whole constellation, you know, a, you know, a flow graph of, right. of, of events, or you're looking at, at, at a larger possibly even universal level of the, the economies of the world. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, one of the things, this is really important that we're able to do this because, of course, this is, this is one place where the traditional accounting model just gets totally bamboozled. They cannot do this in any one sense of the word. It's, it's, they, everything, everything in accounting that's ever been done, ever is always from the red perspective right there, and they're clearly inadequate in, in describing things this way. So it's a, so the people that solve this problem are going to have a, a leg up on traditional accounting. This is, a re this is real easy from an REA perspective. The only difficulty is getting people to buy into the names and the concepts. Right, right, right. That's exactly right. Okay, now I'm going to take some author license here, and I, I, I apologize for this, but the talk was supposed to uh, be about not just REA but SUMO. So um, I hope nobody minds if we uh, advance to the last slide, which is actually going to be slide number 39, and we have some questions. This is an ontology, a specific domain ontology, with all the components that we've mentioned before. Uh, 
the problem that Hito and I are now trying to face is how to connect this to a, a view of the world that's much larger than a business or an accounting view. So if we could, um, I'm going to go ahead here and uh, advance to slide number 39. Um, there's some pretty ugly slides in between there, okay? And um, sort of mentioned in a very general sense, as we look at uh, Sumo as a logical thing for us to sort of try to graft onto, to make sure we understand where we have terms that, uh, that, are, uh, that are not uh, fully specified, where we have overlaps, where we have accumulated knowledge um, from the Sumo team, where they've solved an awful lot of the, um, what I would call, onto ontological problems like causality and temporal ordering and things like that. How do we then connect in with this domain ontology into Sumo? Okay? And these are some of the problems uh, in a very general sense, um, although actually Adam has sort of uh, uh, anticipated at least a couple of them. Um, the first one is that it's primarily schematic, and Sumo is primarily taxonomic. I would guess that that's not a very good characterization. It is both schematic and taxonomic. Um, so um, I, I do have some, some general questions of both Adam and the other people who might know a little bit more about um, upper-level ontologies, about how exactly does one go about taking this very limited sense of terms, you know, ones that can be specified in a UML diagram exactly on one page, and then tie it to this massive um, taxonomic structure in a way that is going to be um, um, aligned and computationally useful. Yeah, so I think one thing you could do is lo actually look at the domain ontologies for Sumo as they provide examples of exactly that. Right. Uh, maybe in particular look at the CCT rep efforts since that's closest to what you're doing here, which was, you know, we were taking a, a schema uh, right. that had very little additional structure and no formal uh, definition in logic, and we first then, you know, mapped every term into the closest thing that we could find in Sumo, Milo, or, or other ontologies that, that uh, extend Sumo already. Um, and we tried to determine, well, if there wasn't an exact mapping, then we needed a new term. So we would you know, do the mapping to the superordinate term and then further specialize it. Um, and then uh, we were faced with the, the issue of, for those new terms, of writing formal axioms, the if-then rules, uh, to make sure that, that we had captured all the semantics of those terms. And okay. you'll really be doing the same thing here. Well, I sort of sat on the sideline while we did the CCT work, um, so I need to get back into that and look exactly what you were doing. I didn't realize that it was such a close correspondence to the task at hand for us. So thank you for that. Um, any other suggestions? or? Well, do you want me to? Yeah, I've got, oh, sorry, Adam, do you want to go ahead again? Oh, go ahead. All right. Um, I had a couple of things. I'm actually jotting down some notes, and I'll email them to you. Okay, thank um, you, thank you. One really, really important thing, which I didn't hear you talk about at all, and which is very, very common um, for people building ontologies, that they don't really say in any level of detail what the ontology is for, nor do they specify any specific requirement that the ontology needs to meet. You have stated up front that you want it for interoperability. That's great. I can imagine lots of ways that might work. Um, so my question is, how did you scope your ontology? How do you know what needs to be in it? How do you know whether it will it will be a good ontology or not if you don't have upfront requirements? That, that that's a very very interesting point. Um, first of all, our initial uh, our initial uh, idea is is the one that would done in the published papers in the 80s, 
which is that we needed to do everything that traditional accounting did, and it was meant to be used for a database environment. So that doesn't tell you everything. I, I realize from a uh, from a, uh, uh, a person, from a computer scientist who's used to putting uh, upfront requirements in very, very specific and elaborative um, and comprehensive um, fashion, that's probably not good. But what we are proposing here is, first of all, a model that is able to do everything that the old one did with the additional advantage that people, other people besides the accounting people, are able to use it. And in this so. case, doing, the model does exactly what? I'm going to guess it does uh, provide a schema for databases to represent this information. In That's correct. That's clearly where it's gone in the past. Yes. Basically, it's serving as a data model. You're creating a, what being, and so the your first requirement is so that your ontology can be used, it will have everything in it that the, the current widely used data models have. Mm -hmm. That's your first requirement. In okay. Okay. Is that true? Uh, that's true, and uh, but we clearly are trying to move also into um, uh, intentional reasoning, so that the ah, that's it. So what there's a word for this in the ontology engineering community by Michael Gruninger. It's called competency questions. Right. Okay. What yeah. competency does your ontology need to have, and which is to say, what questions can be answered using your ontology, some inference rules, and an inference engine? That's exactly where we need to be headed. Now, Hito and I did publish a paper on um, in, intentional reasoning, but it was a very limited paper. It was done in prologue, um, and uh, the competency questions weren't very uh, 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 comprehensive or elaborative. They were basically, can you actually materialize the concept of claims, um, which is a very, very important in the accounting double-entry equation. Um, but we clearly need to be more, much more specific and much more, perhaps, ambitious. Am I, am I guessing that's what you're saying? Well, not necessarily ambitious, no. If anything, <laughs> I, would always, I, was, I would always recommend being less ambitious at first and clar okay. clarifying that you know what you're doing and it's feasible and then seeing how ambitious you can go from there. Yeah. Basically, this is Mike speaking? Yes, Mike. Yeah, um, you know, Mike, we do have a paper, and I, I can refer you to it. I can send it back to you, but it's on the website. Um, you know, the thing, we, we did that, and, and I I don't think there are five people in the world who can read that paper. And the only people who know that we've accomplished that are the two authors. Well, what is it that you accomplished, in, roughly, in a sense? We, we proved um, that the concept of claim could be... Um, uh, inferred automatically uh, if you kept to the semantics that we were um, uh, requiring. Well, proving that it can be done is important. I, I, I used the paper, Bill. Say again? I used it. Yeah, the intentional reasoning paper. Yeah. I used the paper. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, but, but you, Mike, you think we need a much wider uh, range or set of well, competency questions? It depends on what you want your ontology to do for you. Well, we want it to be more than a data model. Let's be pretty clear about that. Yeah, so that's what it's been used for so far. We think it can be used um, in a much wider um, reasoning uh, perspective, and that's certainly what we're, why we're into you know, the field I, now. I, yeah, I, I don't use it for accounting, as you know. I use it right. for uh, uh, value system uh, planning and execution. Yeah. Okay. That's an interesting point, Mike. Maybe I can would uh, we could talk about how one assembles a, a, a program of competency questions well, here's that will prove something. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to. Um, well, the, the, after you build the ontology, then you want to prove that it has the competency set out 
here's, here's something that I have in mind. So you say you want interoperability. Here's one way that might work. You have two different companies, say accounting companies, right? One is merging with the other, or there's some buyouts. Now you, all you have, I know you have all different kinds of and they don't talk to each other. Um, or even just two arbitrary enterprises. They each have two different sets of accounting software, and maybe they use different terminology. And now you need the, the software system to talk to them. So you mm -hmm. could have it create an ontology that captured all the important terms and information and whatever that was represented in any of those two systems. And then any of the outputs or databases you could um, convert from one format to the other. So you could actually upload everything in. Now you could use an ontology you know, to, to be the common interlingua or lingua franca, whatever you want to call it, interchange format, you know, to do that. So that's one way of using an ontology for interoperability. Right. Um, and if you're going to do it that way, then to demonstrate that you have something useful, you, you'd start with two specific um, accounting systems. And you say, okay, this accounting system uses this kind of implicit ontology. It has its mm -hmm. own data model. That one uses that one. They're different in this way. You have to go through the pain of mapping between them. Um, you could do a direct mapping between them, but of course, mm -hmm. if you have more than a handful, that gets infeasible. So you want to have a common standard that you map everything to and from. Yeah. You know, so that's the kind of thing I would think of doing. Well, you know, the paper that I actually took the uh, the the, uh, we, the paper that we put online here um, actually took a first and third section out. The third section of the original paper did outline exactly some of these things. Now, um, there's, there's a version on the, on the website where if you go to, if you, on my website where you go down, but I might send it to you. And uh, if you took a look at that and say, this doesn't measure up to the type of, um, of, of uh, ambitious um, testing plan that I was thinking about, if you could tell us wh where we need to go, that would be great. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> the amount of time I have may be limited. Okay. Well, you can just take even a quick look at it because, yeah. like I said, it's um, it's on the same uh, website. It's a little bit older, and it takes out the um, the reason I took it out was because I just wanted to focus people sure. on exactly the meat of what those figures meant in terms of um, what the definitions were. Peter Yim, am I um, how am I dealing with uh, the time management? Uh, where we're over here. Okay. Um, our call uh, is supposed to end at twelve thirty. Uh, okay. California time, so uh, you've got another like 22 minutes. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Okay, all right. So um, I apologize for keeping people over the uh, the extended time, and if you drop off, but I really would like to um, explore, especially from people who are expert at upper level ontologies, and now have an idea of what we've tried to do in this domain. Where do we go in trying to integrate this and make it work better? Obviously, we've got a lot of work to do. Um, and try to sort of set some of the concepts together. Adam has given us a, at least a general path to do, but uh, more specifics would be even better. Well, I would ask the question, this is Mike again, what is the, what, what competency do you want? What's the requirement? Why, what benefits do you anticipate having by connecting into this? Well, there's, there's, an easier, there's an easier path here, Mike. I mean, sure, competency questions are, are great, and you know that's what we did in the HP, DARPA HPKB program, where we had you know two teams and an independent tester, and we ran lots of tests and we had scores. But I mean that was a twenty, thirty million dollar program. Sure. So you know I think that we also have a sort of lower bar that we could set, which is again similar to what we did with the CCT rep effort, which is not to really worry too much about 
you know, defining the, the purpose and testing against a set of, of purposes and testing alternatives and so forth, but just trying to capture in a more formal sense what that existing standard model already captured. And that's really the case you have here. I mean, we can take the definitions and the terms that are already in the REA and just try to capture them as effectively as possible. Now, maybe there may be some later steps that are, that are more ambitious, but I'd say that's, that's your least ambitious uh, start. Yeah, but I don't see by itself, I don't, I don't see that that's a useful activity. It might be. There could be a hundred reasons why that's useful. I don't see, and until you, yeah, I mean, I don't, it seems like. Well, that's probably a debate that, that you and I can have and, 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 you know, have maybe already had in the past. Well, oh, no, it's not a, for you or me. It's, it's for our accounting yeah. people here. Why, why do they want a, the ontology, and B, why do they want to connect it to, to Sumo? Well, I think, you know, Bill's already outlined that. So as, as I say, I think that's a debate that, you know, you and I could have, but I think Bill's been pretty clear about why he wants to do this. Well, yeah. Maybe he's been, maybe you understand it better than I do. Yeah, well, clearly one of the things that, um, for instance, we took a look at a very informal uh, SOAS uh, chapter on ontology, uh, one of the things we found, oh, we, we missed a couple of things there because we just didn't take a broad enough view of the world. And um, compared to, to, to John's work, which can be read in, in you know, an hour, um, these things are just amazingly comprehensive. Which and in uh, the sumo, yes, the sumo work, and um, and and is going to allow us to sort of think about other places where we need to um, put in uh, concepts or reasoning capability or more detail or something else like that. So in a certain sense, it's. Um, it's as if we were stuck in, in, in an accounting uh, uh, hell, you know, where we'd, the only thing we could actually see is what we could see with our green eye shade. And someone said, business is much bigger than this. The world is much bigger than this. And you've got to account and connect to these things. And that's, well, you can that's connect, what I started doing. Sure, you can connect to it. But then what are you going to do once you've connected to it? Is it going to run in any computer program? Yes. Uh, you know, I actually think um, there's a there's a uh, a lot of talk among some of the other people who were designing software using REA models about actually building the software with the embedded semantics and perhaps some some reasoning capability. Now that's a really exciting possibility. Yeah, in an open source sense, because um, it it does appear that um, getting a company that has a vested interest in um, sort of the the older one. Is is a is a uh, is a very very hard proposition. A company, for a company so. needs to have a business case. How are you going to? How are you going to? What value proposition are you going to present to any company? Uh, that's you an need the ontology. It's going to help you save money this way. What are those? Those are the questions that are very very difficult to answer. And you don't have to answer them if you're an academic. But if you're like me, or if you're going to try to mm -hmm. sell these ideas, then you do have to answer those questions. Well, I've been trying to answer those questions. Uh, yeah, they're hard I, ones. Me too. I've been they they are extremely hard. Um, there is a um, it's it, it's very very hard to get people to um, to adapt a uh, what I would call a semantic laden inter uh, semantic laden model of doing something with a very simple model that has no semantics and just a sort of a uh, a cookbook of procedures that that happen to kind of book and add up and uh, foot and everything I, I, else like I, I, that. Can I, can, I, can I disagree with everybody on this? Oh, okay. yeah. Because I've done this a few times, okay? This, this is, this is, REA, if, if you look at what happened with supply chain software, I mean, I know that it's sort of past its sell-by date right now, 
but but the, the the there were major problems in 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 manufacturing and distribution industries, and still are uh, with. Uh, uh, supply chain processes and the whole the the models of ERP systems were not at all workable, and so a whole new type of software emerged that could actually deal with the supply chain problems. And the models of every one of those pieces of software are exactly the same as half of REA, and they're all strung together in the same way. As I know, I've been I've been through all I went through that whole that whole. Set, set of changes from from the ERP, the standard ERP model, to what would actually work for synchronizing uh, uh, supply chains, and th that's where I got that's where I got interested in the REA model because the, the problem with the supply chain model is they only dealt with the material side of things; they didn't deal with cash. And so, if you take REA, you got the cash half of it too, and now you can do some much more sophisticated um, uh, business intelligence. Uh, so, so it's 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 sort of a it's sort of a question. These things are, are these things are happening, and the models are being used. They're just not being called REA. Yeah, there is a fairly there's a small group of people looking and seeing exactly if you took repeated instances of this pattern and yeah. it fits on one page and took the attributes that would normally go with it, what percentage of the data in an ordinary ERP system would you have? I must admit that is a tremendously hard problem to answer, a uh, hard question to answer. And we've got some people who've sort of attacked it in a very preliminary sense, but nobody with the uh, the money and the wherewithal to actually take all the data definitions and say, for instance, uh, um, SAP or even a smaller system like JD Edwards and uh, subject them to some kind of patterning and sort of see um, is there one pattern that can be used in a reasoning sense across all of these things instead of treating each one as a as a unique uh, collection of business objects that, that, that a human has to sort of say what comes out of this should be connected to this other system in this way instead of having some kind of patterned interaction and reasoning. That's, that's certainly places where we need to go. But uh, SAP uh, is actually doing that. They're, and, and so are so is uh, so are several other ERP companies. They're breaking. They're trying to break their systems down down into business and, objects and yeah. repetitive patterns that they can put out as web services and hook them together as composite applications. Yeah. And and so so there's a whole lot of that restructuring going on right now. Yeah. Hey Bill, I, this is Guido here. Can I can I uh, say something? Yeah. yeah. Um, I would like to address some of the the questions that Mike had and it's the following. I've been working on um, on a little project and I use very primitive technology which is XML and XML schema. And I actually have built small systems where uh, that actually accomplish what, what you asked before, so what Mike asked before, where you have different companies that have like different business processes and they all define their um, business process in a common terminology which is then defined in XML schema and they actually can use the same procedures all right, which is then an XLT, all right, that run on the REA knowledge. And the, the same example is used, and the same example is that uh, claims can be derived, whatever your system looks like, if you have defined it in that common terminology. When I did that, I actually had to use an upper ontology, and the reason that I had to, or I could benefit from the upper ontology was that if you look at the higher level definitions or concepts, we could inherit. Uh, I used a very simple uh, upper-level ontology with objects and uh, relationships and attributes. 
But I could define things like roles at, at the level of the object and then reuse it actually uh, at the lower level. So that was actually a, a huge benefit for uh, using an upper level ontology. The problem was that my upper level ontology was too, too simple. And so actually looking at a more advanced one would, would be a benefit, I think, for the work. So. Can I ask a question that's very interesting? Yeah. Um, you said you're using XML schema, and then you say you used an upper ontology. Now, an XML schema doesn't represent an ontology in, a, in any semantic sense for the most part. What it does is it specifies what things can occur in a document and in what order. That's very different. You can't, you can't specify an inheritance hierarchy, so you can't even do inheritance. So if you're just using XML schema, I'm puzzled to understand in what sense you're using an ontology. Well, I said I use very primitive technologies to do it, right? And actually what I did is I defined an XML schema of an XML schema. And there I defined what is an object, what is whatever, and how they are related. I kind of got around uh, the inheritance, not really inheritance, but then I could do it with like uh, XLT. But, but I agree it's very primitive, but it actually right. works. So, so you, so, but okay. What, what So you wrote your own inheritance inferencing? Well, can, kind of, yeah. So it's I like I worked around it, but it, like I said from the beginning, it was very primitive. Right. But what what the paper or what a project illustrates is that it, probably if you have more advanced tools, mm -hmm. REA would work. Right. So well, it, well, that's the interesting question. I mean, I I very often wear the play devil's advocate, and I'll say, yeah, you don't need ontologies. Just use XML, XML schema, and Java, and you're you're off and running. Um, and some people like to do it that way, but I, I do believe there's some benefits that can be had, but it's hard to articulate exactly what the benefits would be using the semantics ontologies and the inferencing. Mike, have you got a, a program where somebody actually laid some of those out for a, a, a somewhat limited domain? Laid some and, of what else? Uh, the objectives of the, uh, the competency questions? Um, and so we could sort of pattern something? Now you said that Gruninger had actually done it Gruninger for... Gruninger has papers okay. writing okay. about okay. that okay. he built Tove. Okay. Yeah, very okay. detailed papers building an enterprise ontology called Tove, Toronto. Right, right. Yeah. right. Yeah, he I know where it came from. We're not... Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. Yeah, very detailed methodology. Okay. Bill, do you want to try to go through some of the other questions you had on this slide or defer them? Uh, sure. Yeah, actually... Um, you know, the, the one thing that I actually, when I look at Sumo, I, I don't see how Sumo deals with the nature of abstract specification, which is the, uh, the last bullet under general. And um, I must admit that I, I, I didn't see anything that actually looked like, a, um, like what we call the typification abstraction, going from the idea of, for instance, uh, an event to an event type. Um, is there explicit support for such things? It's 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 this idea of physical and abstract. Um, but I notice when when you um, the the, uh, the the sumo taxonomy when it's split at the top between physical and abstract in in for instance uh, in Soa's ontology he has continuant and occurrent, which is the the object and the process in uh, in in sumo. But then when he goes to abstract, he also has abstract object and abstract process. But when we did it in Sumo, the next level down switched entirely. It wasn't um, what I would call symmetric. Am I making sense? Yeah, so, so John makes a lot of this whole lattice of theories where everything right. combined together. And you know, our experience in Sumo is that, in fact, most of those nodes are nonsensical. And although okay. it's theoretically elegant, it's not practically useful. So okay. if you can give a specific example, I can tell you how to model it in Sumo. 
Okay, I think I actually looked at the four levels that came down, and uh, I'm going to advance the slide back to um, this idea in SUMO, which is proposition. It's a proposition relationship between a concrete and an abstract. Am I, I hope I'm not misspeaking here. So SUMO has those particular named terms, but I'm, I don't know what you're trying to represent. Okay. Um, uh, maybe I can pursue this offline with you, or I can give you an example, and we can kind of go from there. I'm going to go back to the, uh, uh, since I, I realize I'm running the keyboard here, I'm going to go back to the general questions. Um, sometime, and actually I think it would be nice on an Ontolog forum, if you could uh, give some insight into this whole idea between the, um, the 3D and the 4D positions as you relate in your paper the in, in Durantis and the, I don't know how to say the second word at all. Um, the people who say you can model everything without events and the people who say events are a necessary primitive, that is a particularly grinding argument right now in the, um, in the business school information systems literature because the, the reigning uh, ontologist, the reigning philosopher who, who's, um, whose ideas uh, you must go through the gate is uh, this, this Canadian uh, Bunga, who has no com no component for events or processes as primitives of his ontology. And so automatically, something like REA that has notions like transactions and events and processes is suspect and is stopped right at the door. And um, I'm sure there are very, very good philosophical arguments. And you said on the use list for the development of Sumo, a lot of those were done. Perhaps we can do that on this forum sometime. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, let's see. So let me, let me try to give you a, the, just the, the briefest overview here. So there okay. are several things that I could point you to, you know, such as there's a whole debate that I, I transcribed that was conducted by email by a, a couple of folks that I, I edited and put online. That would be fun to read. Okay. Uh, Michael Liu's book called Metaphysics that has a discussion of this. But, you know, the top-level issue is that, yes, but either of these viewpoints, ontological viewpoints, metaphysical viewpoints, has their proponents, but neither side has been able to shoot holes in the other that are critical. And from that, I take to be the, that, you know, both are, in fact, just fine, and there's no critical uh, gap in either theory. It's just a, a choice that you make, and you make one of these choices in order to have some standardization. So whereas you'll get philosophers and academics that will debate this endlessly, in fact, all you need to do is just pick one, and either one will be fine. And Sumo has, for the most part, picked 3D, although uh, another contention that I make and that was debated in the, the transcript that I'll, I'll send out a URL for you is that, in fact, both have some useful aspects that are not incoherent with one another. And so Sumo also allows you to talk about you know, temporal subparts like a 4D ontology. So, you know, my take on this is, uh, you know, pick a theory, and it'll be just fine. And Sumo has done that, and you seem to be, uh, have, have chosen Sumo, and, and, you know, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if for academic or philosophical reasons or to debate naysayers that want to tell you you're all wrong, you know, it may be helpful to bone up on what some of the standard arguments in the field are actually have any practical impact on your modeling. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's probably because, I mean, an accounting world without transactions or events, it, it simply is nonsensical. It just in the 4D world, they also do have you know, events in some sense. They, you know, they do have, have triggers, and they do have things that take you between those, uh, those temporally and spatially located parts. They just call them something different and arrange in a different way. Okay, okay. Well, 
It sounds familiar, like, uh, and I know that uh, I'm quoting John too much, but his whole idea of conceptual relativity, which is that if something works, you have to come up with uh, definitions of what, what it is you're using. And um, people can always argue the edge cases, but the rest of us live in the middle where we're trying to get work done and, and, um, and useful distinctions like something's alive versus something's dead versus something's a plant versus something's an animal um, are, are, are distinctions we need, we need even though you can always argue the edge cases. I, I, I guess I, what I'm hearing you say is yeah, get off the edge and, and get, into the useful, get into the useful work. Right, and if only John would, would follow his own argument. I mean, that's yeah. that's <laughs> argument. All right, we need to get him on one of these calls. I don't think he ever does. Uh, that well, <laughs> to make sure I'm not on it then. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. Um, let me see some of the other... Um, um, some of the other problems we've actually had, we have a, we have a real uh, problem in REA with the concept of abstract, um, abstract economic resources, specifically services like, uh, like labor and like advertising service or something else. In a database sense, we have an awful lot of problems with representations with it. And I was wondering, you know, I, I was hoping maybe you can't give me an answer, but if I look at Sumo, I can, I can get some insight into the general problem of identification or representation of abstract concepts. Um, specifically, how do you know uh, that you have a certain um, uh, uh, amount of labor that is available to you? And is it important that you know what that is, or can you just sort of assume it's there, and then when you use it, it say it's gone? No, what, what, I think what, what happens there is that essentially there's, there's a contract, and that contract has in it, in it a, a promise or an obligation, and that obligation is stated as, would be stated as a proposition that the person has agreed to perform you know, so many hours of this kind of work. Right, okay. So it supports all of that. It's just, you know, it's not the usual thing that you'd find in a database representation where you'd want to have a single named entity. Right, right, okay. Yeah, I, 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 that's one of those things I was actually sort of looking through Sumo and say, may, you know, um, I was also wondering, in, in some of the earlier literature, and I did find a paper that had uh, a UML description, I'm not sure what your opinion of, of this Chris um, Faitila, is that the way you say it's from George Mason? Have you seen that paper? Right, yeah. Um, because some of the things actually in there I, I thought were useful, but then I couldn't find them using the tool. Um, things like case role and change of possession, and have these things actually changed in Sumo? Because they they don't come up when I use the browser. Oh, they should. They, okay. Okay. Maybe I'm just. Yeah. I mean, let's, uh, so case role is something I will type in right now into sigmaontologyportal.org, and it comes up. Okay. Okay. Maybe I was doing it in Camel Case or something else like that. But uh, so the so uh, I need to be able because that actually um, the general relation of case role turns out to be a very nice um, parent for a lot of things we call like accountability and stock flow and some of the other relations that we were trying to find um, a more generalized concepts for how they behave and how they act. So. Okay. Well, and in, in fact, we've broken them down so that there are a specific set of case roles, and what we'll probably be doing together would be using the subrelation relation to define more specifically things like agent and instrument that are have spe more specific meaning in the accounting world. Okay. Um, I need to go and look at that again. I, I just wondered if there was um, if there was some kind of a, uh, uh, a mismatch there between what I was seeing in some papers that weren't written by the Sumo team and actually what's going on. So we're over our time, by the way, and I'm, uh, I'm going to probably have to hand this over to Peter here to... Uh, 
dismiss everybody, okay? If it was class, I would say the class is over, and I apologize for going over. Um, the next class, I'll try to let you guys go early, but of course, um, I won't have one of those. So thanks, everybody. I really appreciate the um, the ideas. Everybody has our email. Um, Mike, if there's anything you can send us on this um, this idea of um, uh, uh, competency, other than the Gruninger work, we really would appreciate seeing it and, and um, trying to sort of fit it into our, uh, our research program. Do you want to see it other than the Gruninger work? Why do you want to see it other than Gruninger? The uh, well, yeah, then, then that's a sufficient reference, and then we'll go from there. Okay. okay. Yep. So if you just do a search on competency questions, you may find things. Okay. I've sent okay. you a message with several other comments and pointers. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Let me okay. close. Nice. I enjoyed your talk. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, Let me close you. this talk. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor McCarthy. And it has just been a wonderful uh, event. And thank you all for coming. Uh, just as a preview, our next month's invited speaker is actually going to be uh, Dr. Mike Urschelt. Oh, good. He's going to talk about uh, semantic filtering. And uh, we'll be announcing that in more detail. Uh, the date is April 21st, so uh, again, another Thursday uh, event. Uh, please mark your cal calendars now and be on the lookout for what's coming. And thank okay, you thank you. Again, this is uh, Ontolog Forum, uh, March 17, 2005, and we had uh, Professor William E. McCarthy from Michigan State University with us this morning. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody.